Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Derek Van Riper here with Michael Beller. It is Friday, June 12th. Our guest today is James Anderson. He's the lead prospect analyst over at Rotowire. You probably know him by now. If you don't know him by now, you're going to follow him. You're going to enjoy his work for a long, long time. James, thanks for making some time for us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me, guys. This is this is cool. This is a nice little break from uh, all the draft stuff I've been doing. Yeah, for you know, for two days, I forgot that baseball season hasn't happened yet because you know normally the draft happens in this this time of the year, and it's always exciting for me to to learn about new players. And these are guys you've been watching you know video of for for a long time. And I think you know for dynasty and, and keeper league purposes, this is a, a class where you have a lot of guys that will move quickly because it was a college heavy draft. But as you saw how the top three played out uh, on Wednesday night. As far as the position players go, like how would you rank the top three position players for keeper and dynasty leagues? Well, Spencer Torkelson is the clear number one guy. I slotted him into my top ten last night. That's the highest I've ever ranked a guy directly after the draft. So, uh, really special hitter. Um, you know, kind of a, a once in a decade type of power and hit tool guy at first base so he's he's the clear cream of the crop but austin martin also slotted into my top 20 uh, i thought the blue jays got an absolute steal with him uh, with the fifth overall pick and then nick gonzalez is slotted into my top 30 he's the only other player from this entire draft that that cracked my top 50 so i think it's it's pretty clear that those three college hitters are the cream of the crop for dynasty leagues uh, Gonzalez slipped to seven in part because he's just not a not a great defender at second base, but uh, he'll be good enough there to, to play. So uh, I think it's those three guys clearly, and then there's a pretty big drop off for me. Yeah, I was following along on Twitter uh, during the first round, and I saw that you mentioned uh, in a conversation with uh, Brett Sayer from, uh, from Baseball Prospectus that uh, uh, that uh, Nick Gonzalez is closer to Austin Martin at the uh, two three spot than anyone else would be to Gonzalez at three and four. Uh, so why the bunching? Why are those guys so much higher than the rest? So there's, to me, you have to think about risk with all these guys and the, the safest type of prospect to invest in for dynasty leagues are college hitters with a proven track record. And I think a lot of people, um, sort of overestimate how safe the top high school guys are each year. Like the, you know, there's inevitably going to be some really good high school hitters that emerge from this draft, but the bus rate on high school hitters is still pretty high. And, you know, Torkelson, uh, his track record speaks for itself. Austin Martin, potential 80 grade hit tool, elite bat to ball skills. He's got power. He's got speed uh, track record, you know, and the sec speaks for itself. Gonzalez, I think there are some naysayers because a lot of what he did was at New Mexico State at altitude. You can kind of think of that park as uh, like a Pacific Coast League type of park where it's just extremely hitter friendly. But he was amazing in the Cape Cod League last summer. He was the MVP of the league, um, hit for power, hit for average, got on base at like a 450 clip in the Cape, which is really impressive with a wood bat. And you know, the exit velocity numbers on him are, are really good. He's got great bat speed. He's going to contribute a little bit with his legs. I, I don't think the Keston Hira comps are all that far off on Gonzalez and 
I think there's a weird sense from some that he's not much of a power guy, that it's just kind of all hit tool and, and not a ton of power. I, I couldn't disagree with that more. I think he's going to be a plus power guy. So um, Martin and Gonzalez, to me, are going to be five category contributors. Spencer Torkelson could be the number one fantasy first baseman. And just the college track record that those guys bring to the table uh, is just so important to me. And honestly, I, I have the I have Asa Lacey and Max Meyer ranked ahead of uh, the next hitters. So, I mean, to me, it's comparing those three college hitters to the top two college pitchers. And obviously you're going to go hitter over pitcher there. Yeah, it is. It's pretty interesting looking at just how this played out because of how strange 2020 has been. I imagine this is always a, a difficult task to rank players coming out of high school and coming out of college against prospects who have already started their professional careers, guys that you've seen, going to begin that development process in their respective organizations. How much did the minimal opportunities for guys to play this spring add to the challenge of getting a good feel for where you were going to rank players this time around? Yeah, it's really tough, uh, especially on the high school side. Uh, with At least with the college guys, we have multiple years of them you know, facing college-level competition. A lot of these guys, like, there were a lot of college pitchers that sort of broke out in the spring, but but some of those guys also broke out a little bit in the Cape Cod League last summer. So um, it wasn't as tricky with the college guys, but uh, like Ed Howard, uh, Pete Crow Armstrong uh, on the high school side, you know, you, you kind of have to go with the eye test uh, to a large degree on those guys because they didn't get to play much this spring. Um, with, with Ed Howard, you know, he's, he's playing in the Midwest, so he's not facing good competition anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big difference between the college and high school guys with regards to the, the COVID shutdown and just how that impacts everything. And yeah, this was a college heavy draft, especially on the pitching side, but I think teams skewed even more college heavy because they couldn't get looks on a lot of these high school guys. Like, uh, a lot of general managers, I think, just didn't get to see. Like, their their general managers have never seen Ed Howard play in person, whereas they, they have scouts that have seen him, but it's tough to pull the trigger on a guy like that in the first round uh, when you yourself have never uh, gotten in-person eyes on him. And, and so for me, I'm just, I just kind of have to trust uh, my instincts on this and my evaluation on these guys. Inevitably, once you get past those top three college hitters, a lot of the upside for fantasy is still on the prep side because those are the guys uh, that have uh, maybe more interesting tools typically. So I still think you have to be willing to take a risk at a certain point with certain guys. Um, so, I mean, I think you just kind of have to accept the fact that some of these guys are not going to work out, but you know, you have to kind of weigh the, the upside with the, their track record in, in each individual case. Uh, let's jump to Ed Howard here. Uh, he got drafted by a team that definitely was able to put eyeballs on him, plenty of eyeballs on him. Ed Howard from Chicago gets drafted by the Cubs with the 16th overall pick. Uh, going into the draft, you had him, I believe, ranked uh, fifth uh, of the uh, potential draftees. Uh, he goes 16th, as I said, to the Cubs. Was that the best value in the first round? Uh, definitely up there. Um I would say Austin Martin, Ed Howard, and Austin Wells were probably the, the best values of the first round for me. Uh, Ed Howard 
by far the best shortstop prospect in the draft. So from a real life standpoint, you know, that's, that's a nice place to start. The fact that he's going to probably be a plus defensive shortstop. Uh, I, I see some similarities to him with uh, Carlos Correa, just when you're kind of thinking about what you could get from him in fantasy, I think he's going to hit for a high average. I think he's going to develop 30 homer power. Uh, the speed, I think it, that could be sort of similar to Correa too, where, you know, he runs a little bit in his teens and, and early twenties, but kind of isn't much of a part of his game in his, in his mid twenties. Um, so, I mean, I thought that that was, you know, it, it takes, even though the Cubs did get eyes on him, it still takes um, some guts to, to take a high school hitter like that who has not faced much advanced competition. He showed well on the, on the showcase circuit, but, um, you still have to trust your evaluation to take a guy like that in the middle of the first round, and I applaud them for doing that. Yeah, that's uh, that was one of the relative surprises for me, seeing Howard slide a little bit. I think he was linked a lot to the White Sox for, for some of the reasons that maybe he ended up with the Cubs. But uh, this was a, a pretty interesting draft just because early on, at n- number two, the Orioles went with Heston Kerstad. And the question always is, if you if you reach a little bit with an early pick, do you end up getting enough talent later on in the draft to really leverage the money you saved with that earlier pick? As you saw the the rest of the Orioles' picks come together, did you feel like the overall talent haul was worth the potential slight downgrade of taking Kerstad over at two as opposed to some of the other players that were projected to go in that range? No, I didn't. Uh, I really... I did not like the way the Orioles used their resources. They had the largest bonus pool of any team in the draft. And they didn't take a single guy that I ranked in my top 100. They only took one guy that I ranked in my top 200. Uh, Obviously, I'm doing it for fantasy, but the top guy they took is a fantasy over reality guy anyway. And I, I still didn't put him in my top 100. So I just was not a fan of the way they did things. I know they didn't really want to, they, they, I think they just got too cute. Like they thought back to back when, you know, the Astros, um, when Michael Ice was with the Astros and they went under slot with Correa and were able to sign McCullers. I think that they just sort of forced that plan of let's go under slot and then we'll get value later. They really value these SEC infielders, Jordan Westberg, Anthony Servideo. You know, they, they think there's a lot more predictive um, value in, in guys that have performed in the SEC in the middle of the diamond. I, I just don't think those guys performed enough to, to justify that, that rationale. Like, I just don't think Westerberg is going to do a ton. Um, like he, he's, he's fine. Like he, he can play shortstop. He, he's probably better at third base. Uh, he's, he once was a plus runner. I don't think he is anymore. He can generate, really impressive exit velocities, but to get to that power in games, his swing's going to have to get overhauled. I just, I think they overthought it. I know they didn't want to deal with Scott Boris and Austin Martin, because that was going to mean they would have to pay, you know, full price for him at two and might not be able to get as creative later down in the draft. But I I just think, you know, if you just get Austin Martin and you pair him with Adley Rutschman, that's, that's like basically, half of your core if not more of of the next great Orioles team those guys are going to be four win players at least in their prime and I just think they they passed on a golden opportunity to do that one of the other surprises that we saw in the top 10 was the Padres going with Robert Hassel over Zach Veen Uh, you know Veen seemed like he was the consensus top high school position player 
on the board going into the draft. Have you been able to sort out at all what the thinking was there for the Padres? Yeah, Bean was apparently asking for a ton of money. I think he was asking for like six or seven million. Um, Hassel is probably going to sign for around five million. And the Padres got Cole Wilcox, a big righty from Georgia in the third round. He was projected by most people to go on day one. So the money that they saved by going hassle over V and allows them to get Wilcox in the third. I think that it, it kind of just boils down to that. They, they'd been linked to hassle for a long time. I'm sure that they're about as high on him as, as any team in the draft. So um, yeah, I mean, I think it was more about just if they thought hassle and Bean were close or maybe even preferred hassle and that allows them to get a guy like Cole Wilcox in the third. I think that that's why they went that route. I almost wondered, too, if because Veen was consistently projected to be gone, if they didn't even really think that was going to be an option. I'm sure they went through that process. But uh, getting Wilcox later, that was a pretty nice surprise. And it's the kind of thing, again, with like the Orioles, you don't know who's actually going to be there. And that list of players that you think are worth going over slot for, I mean, it's it's more than a handful, but it doesn't take much for that plan to completely uh, fall apart. But yeah, Wilcox later on seemed like a, a really nice get for the Padres uh, as you kind of looked through the rest of the first round as that played out I mean Pete Crow Armstrong and, and Garrett Mitchell were two guys that at 19 and 20 to the Mets and the Brewers I thought those were extremely talented players who slipped a little bit relative to where they could have gone again thanks to some surprises a little bit earlier in the round but uh, how do those two guys stack up I mean let's just kind of look at them individually though let's let's just say like with, with Garrett Mitchell is he one of those guys that could actually be pretty quick to the big leagues in a class that will be a little faster to the big leagues than most because of the college heavy lean? So I think the, the question with Mitchell and how quickly he moves is whether or not the Brewers want to rework his swing at all. He he could get to the big leagues pretty quick. It's just kind of like a leadoff hitting center fielder who provides a ton of value with the glove, gets on base at a high clip steals a bunch of bases like that, that archetype of a player, he's, he's got it already. He could, he could move pretty fast like that. But the fact that he has plus raw power and has not been able to tap into it. Um, and if, if you just watch him hit, like, you know, he'll ambush a mistake and take it out in a game, but he's really kind of leaning forward, just trying to get barreled the ball, dump it into the gaps and use his speed to, to get a double or a triple and if they want to unlock some power in games, I think that'll slow his ascent through the minors. But I think it, it might be worth the payoff. I think the Brewers are one of the best landing spots for him because I think they're adept at doing that type of thing. Uh, I think if he were to kind of stay back a bit more in his stance, uh, almost kind of resemble Lorenzo Kane, you know, where he gets that big lean back. I think he could get a bit more leverage there and, and drive the ball a bit more in games. So it just kind of depends whether they want to rework his swing or not. Um, but I, I mean, I still thought even even if they just send him to the to the majors as like a leadoff hitter or contact guy, I still think that when you factor in his defense, that was a great get at twenty. Yeah, Derek mentions Pete Crow Armstrong one spot before that to the Mets. Uh, he ended up slotted one hundred third in your uh, post drafter uh, rankings uh, there. So uh, a guy who just missing out on being in the top one hundred. Uh, we know that this uh, this Mets team is going to have quite a bit of turnover in the coming years, but how does his track to the majors look? You know, he'll he'll probably be four years away. Um, I think it was a great get by them. Uh, he's 
he's the closest thing to a five tool guy. I think there is in this draft and that's sort of dependent on him maxing out in the power department, but I think he could get there. He's got a plus arm plus runner plus defensive center fielder, uh, potentially a plus hit tool. He didn't perform as well last summer. If, if he had hit last summer the way people expected him to, he would have been a top 10 pick, but he didn't hit that well last summer, but he was really impressive in a, in a short sample this spring. And I, I just kind of believe in the bat. I think that he's got the, the swing plane to get to power. I like his bat speed. Uh, so I, I think the Mets probably ended up with a steal there. I thought they did a really good job in general. But, yeah, I mean, getting Crow Armstrong at 19 was, was really good value. So you touched on this a little bit earlier, uh, the top pitchers in your rankings from this draft class, Asa Lacey at 64, Max Meyer at 67. There's a pretty big drop within the rankings before you get to Emerson Hancock. Those guys, of course, were kind of clumped together on Wednesday night. Uh, Lacey and Meyer, let's just start with these two, and Meyer in particular. I've seen people say that he's maybe the closest to the big leagues of all because he has an upper 90s fastball and a really good, like a 70-grade slider. What do you see with him in the long term, though? Do you see the ceiling of a possible ace? I mean, do you think that's within the range of outcomes? I know it's a really difficult thing to put on any young pitcher, but do you think he can develop the the third pitch and, and have the command necessary to actually reach that that peak level? Yeah, I think he, he has the tools to be a frontline guy. Uh, you know, when you start with 270-grade pitches, that's that's a, obviously a great place to start. He has a really athletic delivery, repeats really well, uh, throws plenty of strikes. The changeup has been improving. Um, I think that that will, will eventually be a plus pitch for him. So two 70-grade pitches, you know, the slider honestly might be an 80-grade pitch in time. And um, the, the changeup being a 60-grade pitch, yeah, that's, that's frontline stuff. Uh, the only question with him really for me is just, like, can he handle 190 innings? Can he handle 200 innings? Uh, yeah, I think you have to be able to do that to be a true ace and with him being six foot, 185 pounds, he didn't even throw 150 total innings in two and a half years at Minnesota. That doesn't mean that he can't do that, but that's that's really the only thing that we're kind of waiting on to see with Meyer. I mean, the stuff, the command, everything like that profiles at the top of rotation. You know, the lean of this pool was uh, was very college heavy, and uh, it's not a surprise with uh, with as we've already talked about a few times uh, the challenges of what this non baseball season was at the high school and college levels. Not getting to be able to have as many eyes on high school players uh, as teams would have liked and teams would have had in a normal year. So maybe that does mean that some of these guys or some of the guys that we saw drafted toward the top of the board progress a little faster than usual uh, in a typical draft year. Uh, is there, who do you see as the most likely players to be making a, a meaningful impact and debut in 2021? Yeah. I mean, who knows what's going to happen with the, the MLB season this year, but I mean, we might even see guys get a, get a little bit of a taste in 2020. Um, but, <laughs> but for 2021, uh, you know, if the Marlins are okay, breaking Meyer in as, as a reliever, I mean, he could, he could pitch in the big leagues this year or next year. Reed Detmers is kind of the obvious guy, uh, 10th, 10th overall pick to the Angels, um, really impressive lefty from Louisville. 
he's kind of the most obvious fantasy relevant guy that could get there in a hurry because obviously the angels window to win is uh, ASAP, right? Like I think there was, there was some rumblings that Artie Moreno wanted to punt the the draft um, and save some money. But I think, you know, at the very least he wanted them to get a guy that could help the big league club in a hurry. And, and Detmers definitely fits that bill. So I uh, would not be surprised at all if he spent half, of 2021 pitching in the angels rotation uh, with Torkelson and Martin. I mean, those guys are going to be ready next summer too. If, if their teams are, are willing to start their clocks, uh, Burl Caraway, a lefty reliever that the Cubs took on day two. I mean, he could be quick to the majors as well. He's got closer upside. Um, so really, I mean, it's, it's kind of obvious, but like those, those top, uh, those top guys other than Kierstead, I think could all be really quick to the majors. And then you throw in Detmers and Caraway. It sounds like you are pretty confident in, in Detmers. I mean, I know he's, he's kind of close to a finished product already, and that's a, a big part of it. Do you think he's going to strike enough guys out to be a long-term like mixed league viable sort of fantasy starter? I just think the velocity is probably where a lot of people get hung up on Detmers as being, maybe a little bit more hittable than he should be for a guy with a curveball that's as good as his curveball is. Yeah, you know, the the velocity when you when you first look at it it's it's definitely concerning, right? Cuz sometimes it even dips into the 80s for him. But he has um, just perfect movement on his fastball. Like he gets he gets swings and misses on his fastball in the zone even when it dips into the 80s cuz it's just got this this vertical movement that, that really flummoxes guys and the curveball tunnels so well with the fastball that he just makes for a really uncomfortable at bat. And he's so good at locating his pitches that, that advanced command, advanced pitchability, like he's just, he's kind of beyond his years in terms of sequencing and it's, you know, he's made it work. I mean, if you just looked at like his strikeouts in college, you would think he had as good a stuff, if not better, than Lacey and Meyer. Um, maybe big league hitters, like they're just that much better than than college hitters that they'll be able to wait back and, and all that stuff. Um, so, I mean, I'm not projecting him to, to be the same guy he was in college from a strikeout standpoint, but I, I definitely think he can be a number three starter. I think he's going to be a, a low whip guy. Um I think he could get to, to strike out per inning with just the um, deception that, that his pitch mix creates. The fact he's a lefty really knows how to, how to set guys up. Um, so I, I think the concerns about his velocity are, are slightly overblown, um, but it does kind of give him a, a thinner margin for error than with some of these other guys. The way you've got these guys kind of ranked, Detmers is kind of clustered more with Emerson Hancock and a lot of the other first-round pitchers. Meyer at 67, up near Asa Lacey, who went 64th. Uh, clearly, there's a, a, a line there in terms of either a third pitch or better command or velocity. Um, so I, we talked about Meyer already. What is it about Asa Lacey that kind of puts him up in that tier with Meyer ahead of the other pitchers in the first round, especially from this draft? Yeah, it's it's just it's the quantity of of plus and double plus pitches. Lacey's already got three p- plus pitches, and his curveball is at least average, might be above average. Uh, his slider and fastball not quite as good as Myers, 
but they could both be 70 grade pitches. You know, when you compare him versus Meyer, the fact that Lacey's the six four lefty and Meyer's a six foot righty, that's you know, who knows how much that will end up mattering in the end, but just from a scouting perspective, that that definitely matters on paper. And I mean, guys just don't hit Lacey. Like he, I think uh, hitters hit like one eleven against him this year. He sometimes will throw too many non-competitive pitches. Like he he knows guys can't really hit him. And sometimes he tries to just rack up the strikeouts. And so he'll be out of the zone a little bit more than he needs to be. But I think in, in pro ball, um, that's something that, that he won't be doing as much. Um, just a, you know, really prototypical size for a lefty. I mean, he really looks like a future frontline arm. Uh, whereas those other guys we we're talking about, uh, you know, they probably, maybe you could say Cade Cavalli as a 70 grade fastball, but it, it probably doesn't have that level of movement. Hancock's changeup is really good, but that's probably just a plus pitch. Um, you know, Mick Abel and Nick Bitsko, the two prep guys I have in that range, they have the upside to get up with Lacey and Meyer someday, but with them being prep righties, uh, I got to take a bit more of a wait and see approach. James, I want to ask you a little bit more of a process question around the uh, bizarreness, the the unusualness of this particular draft uh, through the lens of the Dodgers uh, taking Bobby Miller uh, with the 29th overall pick, uh, Reed Detmer's teammate at Louisville. Uh, this is a, a spot where they've had a lot of success, and by spot, I mean geographically. They got Walker Bueller out of this area of the country. They got Will Smith out of this area of the country, and our Dodgers beat writer Pedro Mora wrote about that and wrote about how uh, the Dodgers uh, really leaned on their scout in that area of the country, Marty Lamb. Is that something that we saw more of this year, trust in areas or trust with scouts that teams have previously had success with uh, because of the fact that they just weren't able to treat this like a normal year? I think the smart teams definitely did that, Uh, definitely leaned on their scouts. Like This was a year you had to lean on your scouts. Like If you wanted to have a good draft, I I really believe that. And um, yeah, I mean, the Dodgers, (laughs) I feel like every year their draft, it just there's something about like when the Dodgers take a guy, it's almost sort of confirmation bias that, Oh yeah, that yeah, he'll probably end up being good. Um, and I felt like that was kind of the case again this year. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the smart teams definitely leaned on their area scouts. I was going to kind of follow that up with a, something that I've, I'm guilty of doing this, even at the, the big league level. Uh, how much does organization, you know, where a player actually lands in the draft, shape your evaluation of that player's ranking? I know there's extreme examples, you know, a hitter landing in Colorado versus a pitcher landing in Colorado has opposite effects. But just thinking about smart teams and their ability to evaluate talent correctly and then develop that talent, does that kind of take a player that you might have been might not have been as high on and actually really change the way you look at that player because you think there may be something that the smart team sees that you previously hadn't seen? Um, you know, I, I would say it's rarely they saw something I hadn't seen, but like, I'll give you a really good example. Like the Indians to me are, if not the best, they're, you know, top three organization in baseball developing, starting pitching and I already liked Tanner Burns and I already liked Logan Allen a little bit. Like they were, they were both going to probably be in the 200 to 300 range. Uh, Allen might've been borderline top 300, but the Indians taking Burns and Allen 
just gave me an extra level of confidence that they're they're going to be able to develop these guys um, uh, to the best of their ability because we've we've seen them do it before and we've seen them do it before with similar pitchers to to Burns and Allen guys that have really good command have fastballs that play above their velocity um, and that's that's what both those guys can do. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, of a negative example. Um, you know, it sucks. I mean, a lot of, a lot of these front offices have just gotten, gotten rid of the, the bad general managers. And so there aren't as many teams <laughs> for us to, to make fun of, uh, in this regard anymore. But, um, yeah, I mean the Indians, the Indians and the Cardinals, like when the Indians or the Cardinals take a pitcher, I usually give them a bit of a bump just because of their track record developing guys like that. All right, James, going to put you on the spot here. Uh, give us one non-obvious player you want to plant a flag on and say, you know, three to five years from now, this guy's going to be a star. Um, well, I'll say, I'll say Isaiah Green, who was a, I think what was he a third rounder by the Mets last night. Uh, he probably, let's see, I think he's probably the only guy in this draft that I could see being a 30-30 guy down the road. Uh, just all kinds of tools. And he was someone that was going to get dinged by the more analytically inclined organizations because he does not have a strong track record as a high school hitter from California. But starting last summer he just he flipped a switch and just became a different guy started driving the ball more uh was on like a a squad that was scrimmaging team usa and he was a lot of times the best player on the field um plus runner he's going to stay a plus runner he's going to provide value in the field and i think that there's plus power to unlock there obviously the lack of track record and just the fact that he's a high school hitter we can't be super confident in the fact that he's going to hit, but for fantasy, like I'm, I'm chasing upside as much as I can. And green's got upside in spades. I mean, he, he's got the type of tools that could lead to him being a top 10 prospect someday. And I don't think you're going to have to invest that type of resources in a dynasty draft to, to land him. Yeah, that's a, that's a great pull. And it is, it's strange because with so many older players being drafted, the, the ceilings do seem a bit lower, even if uh, peaks are, are closer to being reached when guys arrive. You know, it's just like, it's almost like some of the high school players taken on day two, especially, will be buried in the eyes of some because they will take longer. And uh, I think you're probably onto something there with Isaiah Green. Uh, James, thanks for taking the time today. We really appreciate it. And uh, let our listeners know where they can follow your work. Yeah, thanks a ton for having me, guys. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at RealJRAnderson. I pretty much tweet uh, everything I do out from that account. Uh, obviously, top 400 prospect rankings are fully updated to incorporate the guys uh, from the draft. And the team top 20s are fully updated to incorporate some of the guys that didn't even make the top 400. So um, definitely check that out. That's awesome. Check out the Rotowire Prospect podcast as well. James and Clay Link are on there. Always a great listen. Uh, tons of great prospect information every week. And uh, if you go back a few episodes, you guys were, were building like all-time rap dynasties too, which is pretty awesome. 
yeah, we we took a quick break from that, but uh, we'll we'll be finishing out that uh, that hip hop draft in the coming weeks. <laughs> awesome. That'll do it for today's episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. If you're not already subscribed to The Athletic, you can get 40% off at theathletic.com slash podcast. For James Anderson and Michael Beller, I'm Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast returns next week. Have a great weekend.